afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Arcade Age podcast. Uh, once again, Christopher is not here, so it'll be just me, Zach, being the voice today. So um, I apologize if you guys don't enjoy it, and uh, you're welcome if you guys do. So I'm sure it's a little bit of a toss-up, but we all do miss Chris today, right? Yes, we do. Yeah, he will be missed. Not so much. Yeah, Send him the hate mail. So Send him the hate mail. Yeah, he deserves all the hate mail for, for not showing up on this beautiful Friday. Yeah, right now he's uh, sitting over at JFK in a hotel watching some planes go off. Yep. 70 degrees. On a 70 beautiful degrees. Day. Just in New York City. It is absurd. Yep. Absurd. He doesn't want to show up to work on a beautiful 70 degree day. All right. Anyways. Uh, this episode is Disney meets delinquency. We will be talking about Tron, a little bit of the movie, a little bit of the arcade game. It's going to be a little bit all over the place. And uh, we are in the year of 1982 again. And uh, in this year, we have Ozzy Osbourne from, of course, Black Sabbath. He bites the head off a bat during one of his shows, which he is well known for. I think that's one of the main reasons. Like, even if you don't oh, know Black Sabbath or Ozzy Osbourne, you know, like, he bit the head off yeah. of yeah, you know he bit on that off. Yeah, you know he bit that off that live on stage. An absolute animal. Complete animal. Supposedly the guy didn't know that it was real bad, but you know, it's Ozzy. So I feel yeah. like the guy <laughs> might just say that. Sharon might have told him to say yeah, that. Probably. Yeah. Because he yeah, he, even if he said like he he didn't know it, come on. Oh yeah, chances, well, chances well the are. bat was taped onto his back. Like how did he not feel <laughs> the bat like moving? Flapping around. Uh, I still gotta love Black Sabbath and Ozzy. But um, so that happened that year. Uh, the indoor paper airplane flight distance, the record is broken at 47 meters or 154 feet. What the fuck? Inside. Yeah. Indoors. That was indoor. What? Indoors, in a warehouse? I don't know. But somebody threw a paper airplane and it flew for 154 <laughs> feet. That is ridiculous. I mean, I, was there? Was it like a dead room? No wind? No idea. Like, I want to. Yeah, I want to see the specifications. But the current record is what now? The current record is oh, what? Oh, the current record is even more ridiculous. It's uh. What's the current record? Now? Uh, the, the current record now is at sixty-eight meters. Sixty-eight meters. How many feet? Oh, I see that oh, calculation. Hold on, we're gonna Google that. Hold on, fine. Sorry, out. listen. We live in America. As we weren't grown up on the metric system. Yeah, we have the feet. Two hundred twenty-three <laughs> feet. Oh my what god! The, oh my oh god! My paper god. airplane. All right, now. For the uh, viewers at home and for everybody here, uh, we've all made a paper airplane before. I'll be lucky to throw mine like 10 feet. Yeah, t- ten, 10's a good one. 20 feet. Whoa. Oh, oh, oh all oh, right. Okay, okay. Right. okay flex I, I, I think I, I think Seamus is trying to just but make it But 223 feet? That is absurd. So that was broken that year and, of course, later broken again, which is still unbelievable. Um, uh, what else do we have during this year? Wayne Williams, the Atlanta monster? Yeah, the Atlanta Monster, like super duper awesome podcast. It's very well known called the Atlanta Monster. He is convicted that year of murdering two people out of the 26 people that he supposedly actually killed, murdered. Uh, That's not good. Yeah, yeah. Super creepy, super creepy guy, super creepy podcast. If no one, if you have not listened to it yet, definitely listen to it. It's really, really amazing. Was so, it like a true crime podcast? It's a true crime podcast. It's about this guy who just basically starts interviewing him while he's in his jail cell, you know, recently. And uh, Wayne Williams is just an absolute psycho, but he has this way of speaking and he has this way of psychologically playing the interviewer to the point where he can convince the listener and even convince the the podcaster, the interviewer, that there could be doubt that he killed anybody. 
Gotcha. But he's definitely ill. Yeah, that's the guy's <laughs> definitely convicted. a cold-blooded killer. Yeah. yeah. So, he, and th- does he like? I wonder, does he put like any rationale behind it? Like, if you were to commit those acts, why he would do so? Because like this is giving off some accountable lector type of vibe, from what I'm hearing. Um, I, honestly, you're gonna have to listen to the podcast. It's, it's really eerie. When I listened to it, it definitely sent chills like through me several times. But uh, he kills. I believe he kills. It's mainly men, and he like entraps them, and then he kills them, and he dumps their bodies, and they, the cops end up tracing the carpet from his house to a victim's body, I believe, and that's what, like, that's what years later nailed them on it when they were like, this, this body, this person was in your home because it was a specific type of like. Shag carpet or fabric type in the carpet. They traced it back to the maker of the carpet and it was only made at a certain time. And this really was really crazy. In, this was back in '82 again. Yeah, man. That's interesting because in that's yeah. like that's like around the time where they start, I guess, using like DNA and things like that. Yeah, as a yeah that's the beginning yep. of a technologies like, in depth forensics. So mm-hmm. now I could see like why during that podcast he can make that argument where he could be like, you know, this is the beginning of using DNA mm-hmm. for samples. So yeah, that's interesting. So now on to a um, a brighter topic outside of that. Uh, the Sijji takes place which is an astronomy, uh, astrophysics term, where all nine planets align on the same side of the sun. Yeah. Which is... Super weird. Yeah, I Super, mean, super rare as well. I don't know. They probably have a calculation for when that occurs, and it's probably once every, like, they probably couple million. Do. I could look that up. Yeah, it's probably something ridiculous like that. So the planets align, they line up apparently every 39.6 years. Oh, oh, that's not nearly as crazy okay. as I thought it was. Yeah, that's the not chance so bad. that Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune will all be within this arc, as well, on any given pass, is one in a hundred raised to the fifth power. So, on average, the eight planets line up every three hundred ninety-six billion years. Jesus. Yep. Wow. All right. Okay. So that is crazy. And even even in terms of like science and you know astronomy, that is still a ridiculously large number. So yeah. Wow. I, I guess uh, we we all sadly won't live to see another Sijji. But uh, nope. No. I think I think we'll live to see another day though. I think we could all get past that, right? Yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah. All right. That's all that matters. <laughs> so now getting past that, um, Bally Midway now licenses the Disney movie Tron. For a very unique arcade game, um, it's very strange. It was in the uh, August of 1982, and for anybody who has ever played that game before, we're going to be mentioning a lot during this podcast, but it's basically like, is it three or four games in one? It's four mini-games in one game. Initially, it was supposed to be five mini-games in the Tron game, but they couldn't finish the fifth one in time. So that fifth game actually ends up being a spin-off arcade game later, which is it ends up being Discs of Tron, but it is four mini-games in the one game. And this is the first um, officially licensed Disney game to ever come out. I think it is. I think there may have been some sort of Mickey Mouse game on, yeah, on, say, a, on a console yeah, at some I, point yeah. in time, but this, I think, is the earliest example of Disney 
licensing their product, I guess, quote unquote, to go and make an arcade game out of. Interesting. And I mean, you know, we always tend to, I always tend to talk about, you know, uh, the industrial design or the design of the cabinet or the artwork of the cabinet. That cabinet, definitely a sight to behold, right? So you have the black light that's right under the uh, bezel of the arcade game. That's a black light that then reflects off that beautiful blue joystick. Same type of joystick is used in games called uh, Satan's Hollow, Zaxxon, Gorf. You see that same joystick, yeah. it's just a different color in Tron. But that glow that it gives off is quite amazing. The side art features a photo still from the movie that's pulled from the movie. And then you have all of these lines and circles and different intersecting things you also have on the side art of the cabinet, which says Tron, obviously, in big letters. Underneath that is a photo still from the movie, ripped from the movie on both sides of the cabinet. You have all these colorful blue-red lines on the cabinet that intersect into circles uh, right underneath the bezel on the side art of the cabinet and on the inner, the inner sides of the cabinet uh, kind of right by the control, coming up from the control panel that go all the way up. So with the black light, it reflects this, it's just, it's totally 80s, like the, the reflection, the colors of it. In the back of the cat, when you're looking into the arcade game, you're playing the arcade game, in the back, it has this back bezel, this back glass, where I believe there's a photograph or, I guess it's a photograph, it's printed on, um, type of plexi type of uh, paper in a sense. Interesting. You know? And oh, like a, kind of like, like a plastic sheet? Like almost. a plastic sheet, right? And exactly. And that's like a picture, I believe, of the IO tower from the actual movie. And then that's backlit as well. So this cabinet just glows when it's in the arcade. So we uh, are, we have one in the exhibit. It's on loan. It's on like a semi-permanent loan from friends of ours, uh, George Portugal and the guys from Retro Video Game Expo. So they got it. They brought it here. We restored it. Uh, it was in pretty rough shape. Yeah. But we got it working and running. Um, Definitely not the easiest cabinet to work on either. No. No. That took no. A, that took a uh, lot of trial and error. It took a lot of trial and error and took a lot of bondo to fix the cracks and breaks in the actual wood. I literally think that half of that cabinet is now bondo yep. from me. <laughs> uh, and another thing is that that's, uh, I find it's one of the, like, the heavier cabinets. I think it clocks in, originally it clocked in at over 300 pounds coming off the factory floor. Uh, I want to say it was over 300 pounds, which when you put it on a cart and you get to wheel it around, you definitely feel the weight of that. Yeah. And it's odd shape too, so we have to get the straps to strap it around, to put it on the cart. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost egg-shaped. It is, Does that make yeah. any sense? Yes. It's, yeah. like, it's really wide in the middle, and then it gets thin on the bottom and the top. It's a pain in the ass to strap it up. It definitely does look peculiar in, in how it's shaped. Joystick is an eight-way joystick with a uh, trigger, and the trigger is for firing, obviously, but it's also in the uh, in the light cycle 
part of the game in the light cycle minigame. It's the throttle, or it's the brake or the throttle, I believe. And there's also that beautiful, lovely optical Oh, the rotary dial. dial the oh, optical rotary so dial that we good. love so much yeah. on, on Arknoid and, uh, and uh, Tempest. Hell yeah, it's got some weight on it. Yeah, it really, really does. It's a beast of a cabinet. But the other thing for me with that cabinet is I never sought it out for the collection myself. I never sought it out for the exhibit myself because I was never really impressed with the gameplay of that game. And a lot of people bash me for this, but I really don't enjoy playing that game. I think for me, the beauty and the, the scope of that game for me ends at its design. Yeah. Design is beautiful. It's pretty. It's gorgeous to look at. But I honestly, guys, I don't want to play that game. I'm personally there with you as well because, like, it is a beautiful cabinet on the outside. The lighting and everything from you know from the first look on to where you actually start up the game and you look at the lights, it looks fantastic. But then when you actually play it, it doesn't match how beautiful it looks on the outside. Where I feel like if you were to see this back when it would you know when it originally released. You would put your money in it based on just how it looks, yeah. And then you would play it, and you'd be like, "Oh, yeah, yeah." You definitely, if especially if you watched the movie or you liked like the affiliation with the movie, it almost has nothing to do yeah. with like if it wasn't for the light bikes, it it has nothing to do with uh, the movie. And it's funny too because even with that, even though like you know you have the bike in that one mini game, it's practically snake oh it it's is 100 it, it snake. Is. and, 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 not and that different. game is not lasting more than 15 seconds no no it's and, not and ballet midway is rushing this game to get out so they decide to use to put the game on their uh mcr2 platform which is i guess their arcade platform at the time but it's it's a nice it's a nice platform to put a game on but they're also they also seem to be failing to use it properly as well even in games before that because they had games like journey the journey game on that and domino man on that those were not successful games either the only other game i can think of that was on the same that used the same hardware uh the mcr2 hardware is a game called satan's hollow which is quite an excellent game it's also quite rare game but they're they don't seem to be using the tech to the best of their ability Okay. Well, maybe they were uh, because of all of the bright neon colors and stuff like that. I don't really know, but I just, I, I, I didn't understand it when I was a kid playing it and when I first played it. And I feel like all these years later, when I step up to the cabinet, I still don't understand it. I yeah. just don't get yeah. it, dude. I, I don't get, get it. it. I mean, uh, from my experience, like I've only played it for the first time this year while I was repairing it. I kind of had to, to play it to test to make sure I hooked all the uh, joysticks and shit up. But you like, so you load in, right? You hit the credit button, whatever. And then you get brought to a screen where it's got like four different sections, all different colors. N no hints on telling you what the section like is, what the game is going to be. Yeah, not even the slightest. Yes, yes. So, so you just kind of, <laughs> you, you, you maybe pull the joystick down, whatever. And I think even if you don't pull it, it just no, automatically yeah, if, if takes you. Don't, you yeah, if you don't pull it, it'll automatically <laughs> take you to the speed bike one, I think. But uh, but there's one mini game on it that just, like, the reason why I'm so confused is why are there spiders in, yeah. in, the, in a mini game on a yeah. Tron-like machine? Right, right. Where, like, 
even the game itself, you're supposed to, it's almost like breakout. It's like you shoot up yeah. and then there's spiders that are coming like from the sides and you have to try to get to the top into the safe zone without hitting any of the spiders. Yeah, and then like you shoot one and then three spawn yeah, in its yeah, place. You yeah, can never exactly. get rid of all of them. You have to just dodge them the best you can and get to like that safe spot to get past onto the next level. Yeah, and then the next the level next is, game. yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. The next minute... You beat the level, it brings you right back to the mini like game screen, and then you can play the same game again if, yeah, if you, you want to. If you really to. desire that, yes. Yeah. So if you didn't know that they could pick like which game you wanted, you would literally just be playing the speed bike well, every no, actually, single time. No, no, I, I think actually when you complete because when you complete the first phase of the four mini games, you can't go back there until you complete the other three. I oh, think okay. I think it is set up that I, properly. I would hope that it would is. make I'm way more sure sense. So. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And then if you're lucky enough to complete, well, we didn't even speak about the rest of them yet because one of them there's like it's like a cone shape basically, yeah. right? The MCP cone. Yeah, you're in the MCP it. cone that it's called, and like you're trying to. I remember like you have like these boxes, like a light boxes, and you got to keep shooting the boxes to clear a path for you to clear yeah. it to get into the next entrance way. You get past that one, and you fall into the um, the next mini game, which is just tanks. It's literally just yep, tanks. Yep, I remember that one too. So th- I believe we we covered all four of them there. And then if you if you're lucky enough to get through all four, you know you, you get through the spider one, you get to the safe space there, you get through tanks, you get through basically snake, and then you get through the cone one. You repeat them again, but it just becomes more difficult. Yeah. Yeah, I think it repeats f- four times for each level. Until you beat the game, I want to say three or four times. And if if you ever played this game, just getting through the first set of stages is oh, dude, it's almost impossible. impossible. So I I don't four times and repetitive is just (laughs) I don't play it. Yeah, you know, I'll I'll coin it up. I'll literally move it around for like, like a literally like a minute, and I'm like, okay, I'm done. You know, and the interesting thing is that. It wasn't such a great game gameplay for a lot of people, opinion-wise, but it made $45 million. And, yeah, by 1983, they had moved (laughs) 10,000 units, and it was also named Coin-Operated Game of the Year by Electronic Games that year. Also, Bally Midway, because it was a a rushed project, they get it out and they lose the fifth game the fifth minigame, which was discs. So they're also allowed to then, okay, they can go back to Disney and say, we have this one minigame, whatever, left over, and they get another arcade game out of it. You know, they get a Discs of Tron out of it. So then you follow up with Discs of Tron, which is also not that amazing of a game at all. You know, I haven't, I've never I haven't even played that it. one or I've seen it. Yeah, it is rare. Yeah, it's rare to see, but the gameplay is very similar to the gameplay you see in regular Tron. Kind of boring, kind of done, pretty redundant, and for me, not exactly fun at all. You know, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know. I thought the, I thought the movie was initially a complete dog of a movie no no it was it relatively did do well it made right? a profit yeah it, it, they didn't lose money but i i feel like the movie is a way different ball game compared to like the arcade cabinet like the cabinet i don't think i don't think the game i don't think the cabinet i don't think they really inspired too many people after it it was just kind of an arcade cabinet with black light maybe it inspired some more black light cabinets yeah but the movie is where the in like the what is it uh influence comes from where yeah. the movie itself definitely changed at least 
arcade culture of the time, I feel like it definitely encouraged more kids to go to the arcade. It's a whole movie about a guy that owns an arcade. Right. And then he gets trapped he gets in an trapped arcade in, machine. In a, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's funny because they they say that Tron, along with uh, another famous like arcade-related movie, uh, The Last Starfighter, it's those are distinct films because they're one of the earliest films to use to extensively use uh, CGI. That's back yeah. in 1982. Huh. So okay. that's kind of an interesting no, concept for crazy. them at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, they're totally going to full force use this stuff to get all of those shots with the the black lights and the lights in the movie itself. So yeah, yeah supposedly actually uh, I read something saying that the the animators and the il- like illustrators for the movie were actually really afraid to use like the CGI because they had like a really souped up computer like way ahead of its time for like a normal person to have mm. but they could generate very basic crude images but they were scared where the future of it was going to take you oh wow so they were pretty terrified about what they started they think they thought they were opening up a pandora's box of there's going to be an issue with actors where if we get ever get to a point like they were the ones that first came up with the thought of we're going to get to a point where we don't even need an actor we could just completely wow. cgi somebody in right and they were scared of it because they they knew that it had potential to destroy the art you know quote the, unquote you know what the funny thing is too is that like this is coming from disney you watch a disney yeah. movie today you don't need a single no, actor all you no. need is voices right yep. And believe it or not, a lot of these companies, uh, they technically can own your face if you've ever oh been in my. a movie. So, yeah. like, yeah, if you ever hear of, uh, wow. like, deep fakes and stuff, like uh, Mark Hamill, actually, for example. Yeah. Disney owns Mark Hamill's face. <laughs> so, like, in the, uh, the Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett, like, when they have, like, CGI, like, uh, Mark Hamill, yeah. they brought him to the set and, like, was like, yeah, yeah, dress up. Like, we're going to use you for the shots. They didn't use him for a single shot. They just used his face from past Disney films that Ooh. they've had him, and they just put it on another actor's face. They, they invited him so he wouldn't get mad that, that they're just wow. using his face. Crazy it's, it's interesting that you talk about the, the creators like then worrying like the overuse of the CGI. And I don't know, call me old school, but I, I do think it's probably even gotten to that right now. When I look at certain movies that have been released um, last 10, 20 years, and the CGI is just over the top to the point where you can automatically tell it's fake, and they're not using the actors. And I feel you said something just before about the the art going away, the art dying. And for me being such a huge fan of makeup effects. Oh, yeah. It's I'm so big sad. on makeup effects. Practical I love makeup effects. effects. And I think that nothing matches those whatsoever. So when I started seeing the CGI replace makeup effects in movies like the newer Star Wars or the updated Star Wars things. And more uh, specifically, I feel like horror movies. Horror as well. Movies, like, it's thrown it super out the disappointing it's because you had the greats back in the day like Rick Baker in the 80s where that was... You know, American Werewolf in London. Like, that's all, like, hand-laid hair. Yep. Wow, that's latex. That's all prosthetics. That's so crazy. Yep. That is an art. And if that's an art that is now dying or dead, that is because of CGI, what you were just yeah. saying. 
And it's frustrating because you look at the CGI, you can tell right off the rip, even for today's standards, it's like, really? Yeah, it's you, know, you could just tell it doesn't it doesn't match. It doesn't look right. Yeah, and and believe it or not, there there one hundred percent is a science behind that to where it's the small little things where it's shat- mostly it's shadows uh, where yeah, like a, where a CGI face, if you'll be able to tell that it's CGI if it looks a little rubbery or or okay. it looks a little too smooth. Yeah, like too perfect. Yeah, like yeah. you're never going to be able to get that texture. The, like of a human face or the <laughs> texture of just a creature even like um like i'm trying to think like i don't know tom savini like making like uh prosthetics for like a uh, day of the dead and stuff like that like the old zombie movies now all, they put a little bit of eye makeup on you and the rest is in the computer yeah. like there's right. no s- yeah they just draw it on yeah they correct me if i'm wrong the last time that i saw any real like you know uh, makeup work was for the movie avatar correct no, dude, Avatar's that was all CGI, all CG, that's man. CGI? That's There's all no CG. Yeah. There's barely any makeup. Yep. Really? I wasn't yeah. aware no, of that. You, yeah. One movie is uh-huh. uh, Cabin in the Woods, like uh, the horror movie that came out in like, yeah. 2014. That is, the director himself, Drew Goddard, said that there will never be a movie made like this ever again, like in this time period, yeah. just because of the amount of practical effects that they used. Like they had, I think, wow. like... 12 to 15 makeups like effects teams just doing that one movie huh yeah all artists experts in their crafts but that's kind of dead you know in a in a sense that's kind of dead and what do you guys think it is do you think it's like they just save money on the cgi oh it's like a quarter of the price really think about it this way think about it this way so it is it's it could be even less than a quarter yeah well because you're uh, yeah let's say you're making a mask right you're making a mask for uh, a werewolf right yeah so you gotta pay one person to make the mold of the mask you gotta pay another person to put the hair onto the mask. Uh, you got to okay. pay one person just to design the mask. <laughs> that makes sense. You could pay one guy to sit in, in his own apartment mm. and just hit a couple rendering buttons, put some code in, and he'll have a face that, to some people, looks better than, than a practical yeah. effects. Younger people will lean more on the CG. Yeah, and, and most, I think and the most people just never experienced how the older we, films yeah, were. We well, grew also up in a different most, time. Most, yeah. most movies... Like, let's just take a more recent movie like Hellboy. I think Ron Perlman would sit in the makeup chair like eight for hours. his makeup eight hours a day oh, to wow. get his makeup done. To what? Then go film for eight hours a day to then be back over the makeup chair for a couple hours a day getting rid of it and getting it off. Getting it taken off. So, you, yeah, it's definitely a money-saving thing. That makes sense. You know? That's right. I completely skipped over the time that it takes to even get it started. I found something interesting about the movie. So apparently the inspiration for Tron happened when one of the uh one of the animators back in 1976 he had looked at a a simple reel apparently from a computer firm called magi so he's like looking at these he's looking at a computer animated reel and he also sees pong for the first time so apparently he's immediately fascinated with video games in general and he wants to do a film that incorporates them so, therefore, this idea for him in terms of animation goes, then Tron is born out of this idea of, like, I just want to make a movie about video games. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's great. I wanted to mention one of the points since we were speaking about how like influential that was for the arcade. Ever since Tron came out, with Disney specifically, there's been like maybe you know about a half a dozen movies that were dedicated to like arcade games coming straight from Disney. Like Wreck It Ralph was oh, one of them. Ready like Player Pixel, One, Red or, yeah, Ready yeah. Player One is is in my opinion one of the bigger movies that were all about video games that came out in the last ten years. Mm-hmm. I mean. It's a little bit of a nostalgia trip movie, you know. They it is. are trying to yeah. sell you on nostalgia. However, you know, I like to see that there's still a movie out that even though they're taking some low blows, they are putting some work into giving you some Easter eggs. So you're watching the movie theater, and you're like, oh, shit, they, they got that cabinet in this movie? Why? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, they, well, I'm pretty sure in that movie, do they have a whole section that, uh, that is in it, like uh, takes place in Adventure from fucking like, Atari? I think so. Like, that's insane. That like, itself. that game is just a white screen with, with a blue square <laughs> and some dragons. It's really nice how, um, you know, we were speaking about how Disney, they've kind of changed the face of movies with the issues of CGI compared to uh, makeup artists and all that. But we could also look at it this way with the... Uh, so we were speaking about how Disney kind of changed the face of movies with the makeup artists and now using CGI, which kind of, you know has its pros and its cons. But speaking specifically with the arcade, I think Disney's the only real movie production crew that's really boosting the arcade, if I'm not if I'm not wrong on that. I don't think there's any other movies outside of Disney that are really promoting I believe at that time in nineteen eighty two you're probably right. Yeah, definitely for the time. Like yeah. Disney took took a shot. They yeah. took a they shot did. in the dark. They did. They did. Another interesting thing about the game and the development of the of the of the Tron Arcade game is we could have had a completely different arcade game, maybe something a lot cooler, in my opinion. Maybe something I'd be like, hell yeah, I'm playing the hell out of this. In the design stage of submission of designs for the game, one team had actually planned out an entire first-person vector graphics game. Oh, Right, with a vector, vector XY monitor, that been right? Nice. A color Ooh. monitor. So something maybe more similar to Star Wars or Tempest could have come out of that, yeah. but the second team had done the collection of minigames using the existing MCR2 board set, the existing MCR2 technology I, I talked about just earlier, and because they were on such a tight time schedule, they wanted to release the game with the movie, like see the movie, play the arcade game yeah, type so of thing in their marketing. That's the uh, that's the game they went with because it was going to use existing technology, and it was probably more finished than a vector game would have been at that time. I mean, in their defense, even though I think the game is nearly god awful, um, the marketing clearly worked. The advertising clearly worked. Go to see the movie, play the game. Because it sold, how much? It made Forty-five 40. million. It made in its first year. And if you they moved. The game, Bally Midway moved. Moved ten thousand of those cabinets <laughs> by the end of nineteen eighty-three. So it was released. What do we say? July or August of eighty-two, or so. So you got six months left in that of that year. So in eighteen months, uh, it it moves ten thousand units. And yeah, it, it's totally up to everyone's opinion on this but for for me moving 10,000 units of a, of a of a dog of a game yeah that's that's pretty pretty big deal but 
I honestly do think that it moved 10,000 units on the visuals alone (laughs) because when you do have all the lights off in a very dark arcade, that game just glows and beckons you (laughs) from across the room because, and it's simply because of the side art, the, you know, interior, you know, screen art and just that black light. You know, just that black light glow it gives off is ridiculous. Now, that black light, since we were speaking about that earlier, have you seen any other arcade cabinets beforehand like that? Using the black light? I don't, I I can't recall. Because I've never seen, I've never seen any type of like artwork within the cabinet itself where where the monitor is that looks the way Tron does. Right, right. And that, and that black light is not actually inside the monitor. No, yeah, it's like a, it's above it's it, right? right? Or is it's it right below it's it? It's right below it yeah. on the control, like right. literally above the control panel. So the design is kind of cool for for its day, but it is, you know, you guys can attest to this. It is a lot. Of, it is kind of annoying stripping that cabinet and oh, then putting yes, it back it together because it has like this reflector, like this, uh, it's like a silver cardboard reflector that's inside by the black light so it reflects the black light back out and you gotta take that off you gotta take the control panel off you gotta get the security keys to take that piece of plexi off that the, the black lights underneath yeah. now you gotta get the light bulb out because if it wasn't working I in the black light then you gotta take that cardboard out that cardboard gets all deteriorated and messed up so you're sitting there trying to clean that thing to Get yeah, a get a mirror finish yeah, again true. off of off of a piece of cardboard that's from what, freaking 40, yeah. 40 years old. And it's that's uh, a mirrored image from a cardboard. Yeah, yeah. it's mirror <laughs> on cardboard, like silver mirror on cardboard, and I'm trying to get a shine to it. Like, what do what do what do you shine cardboard with? I have, and that's forty years old, but uh, and you, it's a beast of a cabinet, man. It's just it's that thing is dead weight, dude. You've, you've experienced it yourself, haven't you? And I even just put on the side art on the side of the cabinet, but the side art within the cabinet, yeah. right where the monitor oh is, was an absolute God. nightmare. Oh, the inside, yeah, that right inside, inside, yeah, right, yeah, that that inside art with the it's the line art. Yeah, we wanted to replace it, and then we got new stuff, and I wanted to peel the old stuff off. And if you ever peeled off side art from a cabinet or inside side art from a cabinet that's like specifically like that on Tron it is a pain in the ass. You know, we had to sit there with uh, heat guns for a couple of days and melt it and then, you know, scrape it off, Yep. you know, carefully as to not damage the wood. Cause then if we damage the wood with the putty knife, then we're sitting there with more Bondo skim coating the wood yep. again. And then more sanding. And yeah. then we're sanding again on Just top of that. Wood. So, yeah, that interior side, I mean, it looks great. Don't no, get it wrong. It looks no, beautiful. It but it is really a pain in the ass to do. And we struggled with even replacing the side art, the normal, the regular side art, too. I didn't want to do it. George Portugal, who owns a cabinet, was like, can you please do it for me? And I was like, all right, fine. And he bought new side art. And it came in and it was like, yeah, this is beautiful. And he was like, just throw it over the old stuff. I'm like, nah. nah. I'm like, I'm not doing that. It's going to bubble up. Or that's not the right way to do it either. Like, if you're going to do it, like, do it the right freaking way. 
So, yeah, myself and Jake sat there for a couple of days with a freaking heat gun and melted. You guys did a hell of a well, Melted the old yeah, side off yeah, from 40 well, years ago. Because yeah, well, well, it, well, it wasn't going to peel off by no, itself. No, There's no way. Yeah. Well, we forgot to mention that two out of uh, those, like, three or four days was using a fucking hair dryer. Yeah, that, yeah. That, until we, until yeah, we got a good heat gun. not hot at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I feel like my breath was hotter than Yeah. If you're going to do side art at all in arcade games and you're listening to this, invest in a good, like, it's like a good $100 heat gun. Yeah. It'll make your life so much easier. Even when, yeah. even then putting on the side art. Oh, yeah. It made, you know, it, made it, it makes it so much easier. It gets well, rid of your bubbles. You can just, yep. just Hit it put with it the right on there, squeegee it right on there. It's nice and even, and it comes out the way it should come out without any bubbles or, you know, seeing the, seeing the scratches or the digs underneath it. If you, if you didn't do any body work, you know? All right. Uh, I guess uh, we're going to start looking to wrap up. I I do have one more fact. I just looked up. Okay. Yeah. Go. So, uh, Wendy Carlos did the soundtrack, uh, for Tron, believe it or not. The video game? Oh, no. For the movie. The movie. Okay. Yes. yes. So, uh, so she did the soundtrack for the movie. With the same synthesizer that she used for the Shining soundtrack. Interesting. So, really? So Tron and the Shining, wow. if you oh, go wow. by okay. just listening to it, sound relatively similar. And now oh. that I read it, I was like, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. But like because Wendy Carlos has a very specific like synth sound that's this brassy kind of traditional sound. Okay. Oh, oh, it's great. Like reading that fact just made my day, blew me off. I got one more little fact. So they are hard cabinets to come by, right? But uh, it was late last year, 2021. I want to say November. could be October. And Arcade 1-Up released their recreated cabinet of the Tron Arcade game. Um, So it's like a little mini version of it. My buddy bought one because he always wanted a Tron. And... uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm a purist, but I don't get the I don't get the arcade one up thing. I don't well, get it. Is that like the the bar like the bar? Yeah, top those ones? like little. They're not bar tops, but like they're just like mini versions of With, the cabinet. You can put them. You can buy a riser from arcade one up. You can put it on an arcade one up riser. Then you can sit at it as a stool and play it like it's a regular arcade game. But they don't feel the same. They don't look the same. It's literally well, it's a really ROM, stiff. Right? Yeah, and it's yeah. really like stiff cardboard. Hmm. So, uh, I mean, they got, they got the design right with it, but for me, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be that hard up for a Tron arcade game, go get the arcade game, spend the money on it, do it right, restore it, clean it up, you know, dump all your money into it. If you really, really love that game, I don't, I haven't met anyone who really, really loves that game besides my one buddy. And it's strange because it's one of those things where if the game was that great, I would understand trying to maybe go a cheaper route if you could just at least play the game. But if you're yeah. just going to be able to play, if you just want to play the game, I don't know. Nah. It, you know, because no, no one's getting the game to play the game. They're getting the game yeah, to look at the side exactly. art, to look at the cabinet because yeah, it's such a compl- beautiful yeah, cabinet. Complete their man cave. Yeah, exactly. Right, it's right. It's not to play the yeah. game. It's a, it's a piece of art to, yeah. it's a wall hanger. Exactly. It's what it is. Yeah. It's one of those wall hanger arcade games. And we'll definitely talk about more of those later on in the podcast because there's plenty of cabinets that are just amazing and gorgeous looking. But the game's the game is The game is trash. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. 
So I think we're going to be wrapping up here. Uh, thank you all for listening to the Arcade Age podcast this afternoon. Once again, this was Zach, Jake, and Seamus. Chris was sadly not here today, but we hope you guys come back soon and have a good day. Thank you for tuning in to the Arcade Age Exhibit Podcast. I hope you enjoyed your time with our hosts, Seamus, Zach, Jake, Sean, Chris, and Jose. Tune in next week, and remember, the future is now.